You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. from uh, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of, any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did, really, did God really say that you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say... You must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable, for gaining wisdom, she took some, took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Father, we, I feel like I have to say out loud, we believe it at times uh, with our mouth because it is hard to believe it at times with our heart, um, especially when it's bizarre stories like this that involve uh, a talking snake. Um, would you, Holy Spirit, please, during this time that we have together, take this word and plant it in our hearts, help it to become uh, alive in us so that we can be transformed from the inside out. And it's Christ name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. This might come as a shock to some of you, but even though I'm a pastor, I have an imperfect marriage. Um, been married for 15 years, and Megan and I have had highs, and we've had lows. We've had good times, and we've had bad times. There's been times where I feel like we are firing on all cylinders. We are in perfect unity with one another. Uh, there are times when our marriage does feel like a walk on the beach, but then there are other times it feels a lot more like a war in our living room. And what Megan brought to my attention a couple months ago is she said, you know, when you look at all of our fights over the years. There's one thing that we have fought about more than anything else. More than we have fought about money, more than we have fought about sex, more than we have fought about miscommunication. The number one thing that we have fought about has been food. True story. What we're going to eat, when we're going to eat, the quality of what we are going to eat. Food has been the thing more than anything else that has created conflict between us. And as crazy as that made me feel, I found out this week I am not alone. In fact, according to a recent survey conducted by one poll after studying over 2,000 Americans, the most contentious subject between partners is what they are going to eat. Their research indicates that the fight for food is what 37% of couples said creates the most tension in their marriage, with more than half of the participants saying that they hate when their spouse asks that dreaded question, what do you want for dinner? The report went on to say that the average couple argues over food 156 times a year. 
And this conflict over food really isn't something new. If you think about the story that Scott just read about Adam and Eve, it reminded the very first struggle, the very first conflict in marriage was about food. If you look back with me in Genesis 3, verse 1, just the context for you, uh, God has created a, a world that is good and beautiful and true. It's rhythmic. It's as it should be. And in a world full of yeses, there's just one no. He says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And just like so many of us, usually the one thing we can't have is the one thing we want. And so look what happens next. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now the snake, if you're like, where did the snake come from? We really don't know, but we know according to the prophet Isaiah in Revelation chapter 12, it's talking about Satan. It's talking about the devil. Now the snake was more crafty. That, that Hebrew word there means he was more prudent. He was smarter than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And apparently this snake could talk. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from the tree in the garden? I just want to draw something out here that Satan's primary weapon is usually a question. And it's a question that is meant to call into question God's word. It's what's happening here. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, well, actually, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and that we must not touch it or we'll die. By the way, God never said anything about they can't touch it. Like she's just now adding to what God said. Verse 4. The devil says, you will not certainly die. I heard one pastor say before that the devil's primary strategy against you is not demonization. It is not disaster. It is deception. It is selling you on lies that play to your desires. You're not going to certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is he calling into question? Ultimately, he's calling into question God's character. God is not good. He does not care for you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. Do not trust him. And when the woman, verse 6, saw the fruit of the tree was good for what? Food. And pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was there and he ate it. Verse 7, let's keep reading just a few more verses. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And because sin has now contaminated their body, they're embarrassed of their body. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So now here comes shame. Shame has now entered into creation. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Did the God who's all-knowing not really know where Adam and Eve were? He knew where they were. This is not a geographical question. This is a relational question. Where are you? You have to know where you are in order to get to where you should be. Where are you? Try to call him back into a relationship. The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So now here's fear. Here's anxiety. I, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And because Adam is feeling guilty, he completely throws his woman, his wife, under the bus. And he says, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. I was doing fine without her. You created her and here's where we're at. She gave me some fruit to, to eat from the tree, and I ate it. And then, verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The snake deceived me, and so I ate. And then the story goes on. Now, there's a lot in there, but for our purposes today, here's what I want you to notice, that the original sin that created the first conflict, the original sin that led to the chaos that we are now living in, was tied to food. 
Uh, I think of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 3, verse 19, where he's talking about people who live as an enemy of God. And think about this. The way that God describes people who live as an enemy of God, as he says in Philippians 3, 19, that, quote, their stomach is their God. I think he's remembering Genesis chapter 3. In other words, what, what he says is, is rather than people trusting in God's character, we instead trust more in our cravings. Uh, rather than being ruled by the word of God, we are ruled by our appetites, which we see in Genesis 3 is the very thing that leads Adam and Eve, and therefore the world, down this path of destruction. And listen, because Adam and Eve's sin has been passed uh, not only to, to their kids, but to all humanity, right? All of us now face this temptation. All of us have this temptation to, instead of living like God-like contributors, we live as childish consumers. Rather than viewing our desires as something good, we view our desires as God. We make our desires our final authority in our life, and as a result, our bodies at times become slave to our appetites. Rather than being controlled by God, our bodies and therefore our lives are controlled by our desires, which do in fact at times lead us not into life but into death. And you see, because the Apostle Paul knows this is how it works, and in one of the most important letters written in the New Testament when writing to the Romans Go study about them. They were people who very much had bodies controlled by their own desires. Paul, writing to them in Romans 12, 1, says the following. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, listen to this, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now that is a theologically rich verse that I could spend the rest of my time trying to unpack. But here's what I want you to see. God, according to the Bible, cares immensely about your body. When God created this world, he didn't just create an immaterial world. He created a material world. Plants and trees and animals and, and, and fruit. He created Adam and Eve in his image, and he created them with what? With a body, with a nose, with eyes, with ears, with, with fingers, with toes, right? When God decided to save the world, how did he do it? He took on a body, remember? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and it says the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And then think about this. After Jesus accomplished the mission that God gave him, after living a perfect, sinless life that none of us in here can live, and after going to a cross and dying for our sins and, and raising from the dead, when he resurrected, he wasn't just a ghost. He had a glorified body. And here's the good news for those of you who have trusted in Christ. One day, just as Jesus experienced a death, burial, and resurrection, you too will experience a death, burial, and resurrection. One day, your body, the body you have right now that you journey in, that body will be glorified in heaven. All of the sin and all of the aches and all of the pains and all of the imperfections will be rinsed out of you. Isn't that good news today? That is for me. Because sometimes I wake up and my back's hurting and all I did was sleep. It's like, one day that's going to be over with. That's what we celebrate at Easter. But until now, that's not true. Now we do have bodies that have been contaminated by sin. This is why the Apostle Paul, I believe it's in Romans chapter 7, says this, What a wretched man am I? And then he asks this question, question, Who will deliver me from this body of death? What was the Apostle Paul feeling in that moment? He was feeling the effects of a body that has been plagued by sin. And listen, if we are ever going to become the best and freest versions of ourselves, we have got to partner with God 
and bringing all of our lives under the lordship of Jesus, which includes our physical, God-given bodies. And this is important because I think as a church, we really, we really have a hard time with grasping what the Bible says about the body. We have a hard time. We, we have these misconceptions, uh, these, these wrong perspectives about our bodies. And so, for example, Scott McKnight, who is a professor and a theologian, he, he talks about this, and he says that in the West, in America in particular, uh, even in the church, we tend to view our bodies in one of three ways. And the first way uh, that we view our bodies is as a monster to be defeated. And so if you think about Frankenstein, right? Like some of us view our bodies that way, and specifically we view our desires that way. And we think all desires are bad, whether it be a desire for sex or for chocolate or whatever else. And therefore we think, man, if we're going to be holy people, good people, we got to get rid of desire. God is this like celestial killjoy. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to have pleasure. So if there's anything you want to do, you better kill that desire before it kills you. That's one view of the body even in the church today. Another way that we view our bodies is not as a monster to be defeated, but as a celebrity to be glorified. And these are people who view their bodies not as, a, as something we give, as the Apostle Paul says, and, and as a sacrifice for worship to God, but we view and set our body as a way to get worship from others. Does that make sense? And so, yeah, we, we eat right, we diet, we exercise, but not as a way to glorify God, but as a way of getting glory from others, as a way of getting you to lust after me. That's a celebrity to be glorified. And then there's a third and, and final view that I think is pretty prominent in our culture, and that is a cornucopia to be filled, which is what we see with Adam and Eve. If, it, it, man, if it, if it looks good, if it tastes good, if it smells good, I have to have it or I will not be happy. The body exists for the sole purpose of producing to me these desires and pleasures, and my job is to take whatever I can, whenever I can, and feed my body to meet that need or that want so that I can be happy. Does that make sense? You see, but uh, all those beliefs, as popular as they are, even in the church today, the reality is the body is not a monster to be defeated. It is not a celebrity to be glorified or a cornucopia to be filled. Rather, according to the scriptures, your body is meant to be a temple of God. It is meant to be the place, the sanctuary, the structure that houses the very presence of God. And you have to get this today. Because God cares about all of you. Because there's not an inch of your life that God does not love. When God moves into your life, he does so with the intention of cleaning house. He does so with the intention of renovating and restoring your entire being, mind, body, and soul. Which therefore should beg the question, how do we participate with God in this work? As we have said before, it's important you get this, that, that when it comes to your own discipleship to Jesus, God has a work to do and you have a work to do. I think it was Augustine who once said that, that without God we can't, but without us he won't. So how do we participate with God in our sanctification and becoming the, the best version of ourselves? And in short, if we're going to get our whole bodies involved in our discipleship to Jesus, we need to reintroduce and to readopt the ancient practice of fasting. Yay! Everybody excited? And this practice of fasting, it's not only something we see in the life of Jesus, and we do see it in the life of Jesus, by the way. Remember when he enters into the wilderness, he fasted from food for 40 days? And why did he do that? He did that so he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan and come out not as a victim but as a victor and then have the power through the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything God had given him to do. 
But this is not only a practice we see in the life of Jesus, this is actually a practice. He automatically assumes that if you are his disciple, that you too will do. And you say, well, where do you get a crazy idea like that at? Well, I get it from Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus says this. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God will reward me. Yeah, when you fast. Notice, right? Two different times. Not if you fast, but when you fast. And this is, if, if you've studied church history at all, it's because of verses like this that for 1,700 years, after the ascension of Jesus, fasting was just a normal part of the Christian life. Now, we view fasting for like the weird people or for like varsity level Christians, but at this point, you know, for much of the church's history, it was not for varsity-level Christians. It was for ordinary Christians like you and like me. I mean, go back and study it for yourself. Before the Age of Enlightenment, Christians would practice fasting not just twice a year, which is what a lot of us do at best, but they would actually practice it twice a week, every single Monday and Wednesday. Go and read this for yourself. And Christians wouldn't just fast for whole days. They would fast for entire seasons. Did you know Lent which again, we're the season we're in right now, we're joining churches all over the world and in the season of Lent, Lent was originally a time where Christians would fast for 40 days from sunup to sundown. Now that has been, uh, no longer is practiced anymore, but if, you've, uh, if you know anything about the Muslim faith, our Muslim friends have picked up this practice, right? During Ramadan. Um, as most of you know, uh, we have been able to build some really good relationships with Muslims in our city. And uh, several years ago, I talked about this. Philip Greer and I, we went to a mosque, visited the mosque, and uh, there in Jonesboro, and before you go in, remember me telling that story? It's like you're supposed to wash your feet, but I couldn't get my feet up in the little basin because I had skinny jeans on, right? And so they're like throwing water on my feet, which is super humiliating. But I got in, and, and we watched their whole deal, and, and, and when the sun went down, they rolled out like this cloth. It was like, I felt like it was as long as this aisle right here, and they just packed it full of food. And they begin to feast. And they would do this every single day for 40 days. You skip breakfast, you skip lunch, and the sun goes down, you eat. And, and listen, this was originally practiced by the Christians before they dropped it and the Muslims picked it up. And if you're like, well, well why did the Christians ever drop it? Well, in short, it was because of the Age of Enlightenment. And the Age of Enlightenment, what happened is we basically began to teach this, this belief that, that, that humans are nothing more than brains on a stick. That if I just think the right thoughts, I'll become the right kind of person. Think of that famous line from Rene Descartes who once said, I think, therefore I am. What in the world does that mean? It means if I'm going to be a good person, I just got to think good thoughts. And if I get my thinking right, I will be right. And as this idea began to rise in the church, fasting began to decline rapidly. Because from now, it's like, oh, well, the body doesn't really matter. I do whatever I want with my body as long as I just think the right thoughts. And it began to decline so rapidly. I want you to hear what revivalist and pastor John Wesley said. This is in the 1700s. He said this. As the age and enlightenment began to get a lot of traction and fasting began to decline in the church, he says this. I fear there are now thousands of so-called Christians. It's a little passive-aggressive, by the way. So-called Christians. Both in England and in Ireland who are following the same bad example, who have entirely left off fasting. Who are so far from fasting twice a week 
They do not even fast twice a month. It's like, twice a month? That's like a black belt Christian at the crossing. The man who never fasts is no more in the way of heaven than the man who never prays. But anybody else in here say like that feels a little bit harsh? I think so, but we got to keep in mind this is coming from one of the greatest leaders in church history. Starter of the Methodist movement who is looking back and reflecting not just on the scriptures, but I mean 1,700 years of history where fasting was not something reserved for the varsity Christians, but it was practiced by the everyday, ordinary Christian. And to be clear, does our thinking matter? Yes, of course it does. The same passage in Romans 12.1 that says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The very next verse, Paul says in Romans 12.2, and be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So don't hear me saying something I'm not saying today. I'm not saying your thinking doesn't matter. Paul even says, like, take every thought captive. I'm not saying thinking doesn't matter, but here's what I'm saying, and please get this. If you zoned out, zone back in, this is kind of just the main point. What you do with your body matters just as much as what you think with your brain. I'm going to say that again because I don't think most of us have been taught this kind of stuff. According to the scriptures, what you do with your body matters just as much as what you think with your brain. If you want to grow into the man or the woman you long to be, you've got to stop separating the spiritual from the material. You've got to realize that, that, that your physical life and your mental life go hand in hand in your discipleship to Jesus. And because that is true, here's the deal. I want to call each of you in this church to fast. And if you're like, well, what does it mean to fast? Well, fasting, simply put, is abstaining from food for the purpose of feasting on God. Or as John Piper put it, I like this, fasting is whole body hungering for God. And that is what makes fasting such a powerful tool. Because, please hear this, this is about to get super practical for you. If you want to break free from your addictions, and we all got them, if you want to get unstuck in your discipleship to Jesus, if you want to experience the freedom and the fulfillment that you are longing for in Christ, it always starts with hunger. Always. Hunger is what drives us to do what we do. Hunger is what pushes us. It's what motivates us. And fasting, according to John Piper, is whole body hungering for God. Hunger and our fasting, fasting, when we fast, what we are literally doing is we are saying to God, God, I cannot stay where I am. God, I can't have another year this year like last year. God, I can't keep coasting. I can't keep drifting. I can't keep pretending like everything is fine when clearly it is not fine. Fasting awakens all of that. It moves you out of that. I think back to the prodigal son, which was the story that we read yesterday in the church calendar, right? That, that's, that's presented for us. Like, think about the story of the prodigal son. What got the prodigal son out of the pig pen? What was it that made the prodigal son come to his senses and decide, I need to go back home and be with my father? It was hunger. It says it right in the text, Luke 15, 17. He says, how many of my father's servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? Listen, 
Hunger is what makes a prodigal return home. Hunger is what wakes up people who are asleep. Hunger is what redirects the backslider. Hunger is what frees you from these desires that you have been enslaved by. And that is why we desperately need to take seriously the practice of fasting. Because more than any other practice, it forces you to say, not just with your mouth, not just with your mind, but with your stomach, with your body, I need you, God, more than I need food itself. And so, yeah, fasting is about abstaining from food, but far more than that, it is about experiencing more intimacy with the God who is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And so with that in mind, with three weeks left in Lent, I think we're halfway through Lent now, I want to encourage you to fast at least once every week for the next three weeks. Just give it a shot. Just give it a shot. Something my wife and I are trying to do, we're trying to fast... um, we have our, our dinner on Monday, say around 5, 5.30, and then we fast until dinner on Tuesday night. And that's something we're trying to do every single week. And for some of you, you're like, listen, that's too much for me. Fine. Like all the spiritual disciplines, don't start where I am, or don't start where your neighbor is. Start where you are. Like, just maybe fast through breakfast, or fast through lunch, or don't eat your snacks. Just fast through your snacks, even. And if you're like, well, wait a minute, Jerry, like, isn't fasting physically unhealthy? No, actually quite the opposite. All the research now tells us that there are a ton of health benefits to fasting. For example, fasting cleanses the body of toxins. It increases metabolism and reduces weight. It lowers insulin levels, inflammation, and blood pressure while also strengthening the immune system. Fasting has been proven to slow aging and protect against or reverse diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even neurological disorders such as Alzheimer's. But none of those are reasons why you should fast. We don't fast because we're trying to get physically fit. We fast because we're trying to get spiritually free. We fast because by learning to say no to our flesh and yes to Jesus, we grow in the ability to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. And it's so important that you hear that because look right at me. If you try to start fasting this week, it is going to feel like anything but freedom. If you try to start fasting, it is going to be hard. It is going to be difficult. You're going to feel weak. You might even fall under attack from the enemy like Jesus did whenever he was fasting. All of these kind of disordered desires within you are going to begin to crop up, and you're going to realize, whoa, man, like I've still got some kind of gnarly stuff in there that I've been numbing with food. Now that I don't have food, it's kind of popping up. Fasting is going to make you hangry, it's going to make you irritable. And some of you, it may not, some of you, it may be awesome, but that's not typically people's experience. Why? Because when you fast, you're not just denying yourself a food, you are crucifying your flesh. You're confronting these disordered desires that live inside of you and saying, I want to bring all of this under the authority of Jesus. You see, desires that go rogue become idols. And when you think of idols, don't think of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. An idol is simply any good thing that you make into an ultimate thing. An idol is anything that you exalt above God and you give more worth than God that you begin to worship instead of God. It is something that you look to and say, I have to have this thing in order to be happy. An idol is whenever you say, this is the thing 
that gives me significance. This is the thing that ultimately gives me security. This is the thing that ultimately gives me satisfaction. And listen, no matter who you are or where you come from, this is a temptation for all of us in here. Every person in here, including me, is tempted every single day to worship creation over the creator, whether it be sex or beauty or money or career or comfort or even our own kids. Things that we begin to believe, I have to have this thing in order to be fulfilled. And what you need to know today is if there is anything you ascribe more worth to in your life than to God, that thing will eventually drive you into the ground. And if you don't believe me, I would encourage you to listen to other people who have tried and made this an experiment in their own life. David Foster uh, Wallace, who's an author, uh, was a brilliant man. He was an atheist turned agnostic and then eventually hung himself. He never quite fully became a follower of Christ. But in his commencement speech to Kenyon College, which is a highly intellectual institute, here's what he said. I find this profound. Keep in mind, this is from an agnostic not a Jesus follower. Here's something that is weird but true. I am discovering that there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is who or what to worship. Maybe one compelling reason to worship God is because pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, You will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. (laughs) That's really good. All that being said, listen, in a world where everyone is telling you that if you want to be happy, you've got to give in to your desires and do whatever you want, whenever you want, we desperately need church to recapture this practice of fasting. A practice where we learn to say no to the flesh. No to these disordered desires that can become idols, that can enslave us and drive us into the ground and say yes to God, the one who alone can give us the freedom and the fulfillment that we long for. And to be clear, I want to go on the record saying this. I'm not very good at fasting. Um, I told Megan this past week that I really believe that food is one of my love languages. You guys remember Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? It should be six. I got one. I see that hand. Um, Food should be a love language. It's one of mine. And honestly, it goes deep. It's rooted deep in my story. Uh, My food is a massive part of my family's life. Still is. Um, My parents, I invited my parents to come to the basics class following this service. And uh, my mom, she knows we have a free lunch. And I said, you want to come? You have free lunch? And she said, yeah, what dessert can I make? I've been doing this for 12 years. Nobody's ever asked me if they can bring a dessert to basics class. Why did my mom say that? Because it's that important to my family. Like it's how she shows love. And it's therefore how in many ways I think I received love, which is why we have arguments at times over food. It's like that. It's like it's about love. And what God has been showing me this past week is this, is that when I fast, it is not his way of starving me of love, but it's a way of filling me with an even greater love, with his love, which as King David says, is better than life itself. And guys, that is ultimately what all these spiritual disciplines are about. Pick any of them. It's not about you earning God's love. You can't do that. It's about making space to experience more of the love that he is right now continually pouring into your heart, even if you don't feel that is true. Love that when we begin to receive it, will begin to transform us from the inside out for our good and God's glory.
you know, I was talking to, to one of my kids this past week and who was having a rough time at school and struggling with kind of this cold, hard reality that sometimes you have people in your life. It's like, I'm always going to be there for you. And then you realize that's not necessarily true. It's a very hard reality to experience. You've all been there, right? And I was talking to this child for a, a couple hours and eventually I just looked and said, hey, what, what would be different about your life and how you handled the situation if you could believe that God loves you as much as he actually says that he does? And this child looked at me and said, oh, I'd have confidence. So what do you mean by that? I'd have confidence because I would know that if God loves me and he approves of me, I don't have to live for the approval of others anymore. And as I thought about that answer, I thought about how few of us live with that level of confidence. So many of us in the room today that we relate so much, not to Jesus, who was able to face rejection and keep going without it just destroying his life. We're instead like Adam and Eve. We're filled with so much shame and so much insecurity and therefore so much fear And as a result, we're missing out on the abundant life that Jesus wants to give us. And if that's where you are, here's some really good news today. God knows exactly where you are. And he is pursuing you in love. And he is wanting to call you out of hiding. And he is wanting to replace that shame with honor. He is wanting you to begin to experience in him a confidence that can only come as a result of being secure in his love. And here's what I started thinking about this week. I've never had this thought before. And you guys, so many of you, and I mean this like seriously, are are so much smarter than me, and and you probably know the Bible better than me, and you've probably thought of this a million times. But I just had this thought this week. I asked Megan, I was like, have you ever heard this before? And she's like, no, I never heard it. And I was like, this is profound to me. Think about this. Food, if you go back to Genesis 3, is what separated us from one another and from God. And thousands of years later, Jesus said, food is going to be the thing that brings us all back together again. Communion literally means a common union. It's a way that we all remember our need for Jesus. And that's why we take it every week. Jesus has come to redeem everything, including food. Some of us had a very unhealthy relationship to food. Jesus wants to redeem all of that. And I love that the way that he says, the tangible reminder that he gives us, that that says, I'm going to redeem all things. Food took it down. Food is what brings us back together again. And what is this food? What does communion remind us of when we take it every single week? Well, here's what I want you to remember as you come and you take it today. Be reminded of of this wonderful reality. And I'm almost done, so stay with me. At the cross, think about this. Jesus fasted from the love of God. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters for a lot of different reasons, but think about this. In John, I don't know where it is, 14, 15, 16, I probably should have looked it up before I said this, but think about this. In in John's gospel, Jesus said, here is what the Father has been doing from eternity past. Right? If you ever wondered, like, hey, what's God been doing for all eternity? What's he been up to? Before he created the earth. 
It's a long time, eternity passed. What's he been doing? Jesus pulls back the curtain in John's gospel and he says, let me show you what he's been doing. Anybody remember this verse? Is anybody in here? Okay, this is going to be good. So he says, let me tell you what the father has been doing from eternity past. You know what it is? Loving the son. For all eternity, God the father, according to Jesus, has just been pouring out his love on his son. And that is what Jesus was so terrified by in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's like, hey, if there's any way I can get out of this thing, that'd be great. It's not because he was scared of physical pain. But he knew at the cross, when he went and stood in your place, that he was going to be forsaken by his Father for the first time in eternity. And because he knows how sweet the love of God is, that terrified him. He didn't want to go a second without it. At the cross, Jesus fasted so that you could be filled. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken of God's love so that you can be filled with his love. And as you come and take a communion today, as you let that fill your body, ask for God again to afresh fill you with his love. With that, I'm going to invite our band to come forward and those who are preparing communion. And here's, let me give you some quick instructions because this has changed up just a little bit today with the baptistry up here. Um, what we'll do in just a moment, and this will be good for you, especially if you're a visitor, People, I'll pray for us, and then you can, if you want to take communion, you can file, you can kind of come here to the middle aisle, and then if you're on this section, you can come and take, take communion over here. Um, or if you're in this section, you just file and you come take communion here, and then you can go and return to your seats. We also have a self-serve section back there, which is our gluten-free option. It's in my back left. It'd be your back right. And even if you're not a member of this church, you are absolutely welcome to come and take communion. Remember, the bread represents the perfect life of Christ. He lived on your behalf. The Jewish substance of Jesus' blood shed on your behalf for the forgiveness of sins. If you're here today, let me say this, and I'm almost done. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Jesus, I pray today will be the day of salvation. I love these baptisms. Were they awesome? Three in the second, one in the first. I love hearing about what God is doing in the lives of others. God can do that in your life. You don't have to earn God's love. Just come with the empty hands of faith today and receive everything that he's done for you in Christ. And if you have questions about what that looks like or want help with that, or you want us to pray for you in way, I'll be up here in the front. Uh, we'll have a prayer team back there in the back, and we'd love to connect with you that way. Let's stand together. I'll pray. And then after I'm done praying, you can uh, come forward, receive communion. We'll sing one final song, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who is here. I thank you for giving us your word. I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit that you would minister to each heart, that you would fill us afresh with your love. I pray, God, for the person in here that does not have a hunger for you, that, God, you would create that hunger. I know that many times in my own life, I just confess, God, I'm not hungry for you because I'm stuffed by the things of the world. And if that's anybody in here, Lord, I just pray that you would reset our appetites for you today. Help us to hunger for you and to trust that when we come to you with that hunger, that you will not send us away, that you will fill us with all good things, primarily your presence. Thank you, Jesus, for the wonderful sacrifice that you have made. Thank you for fasting from the love of your Father on the cross so that we could be filled with that love for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen.